nomine Patri, in Fili, in Spiritus Sancti. Amen. We're going to continue reading and exploring the introduction to a life of devotion by St. Francis de Sales. Um, as I said before, I'm not a spiritual teacher. This is not here to give direct spiritual instruction to anyone. And what we're hoping to do is to delve into the wisdom that this book has to offer, to read some of it and just make some reflections on what it has to say. For spiritual instruction, I not only recommend, but insist that you go and find a good Catholic priest. So let's continue. There are penitents who forsake sin indeed, but do not give up their affection to it. That is to say, they resolve to sin no longer, but they have a certain reluctance to, to deprive themselves of the miserable delectations of sin. Their heart renounces sin and departs from it, but it ceases not for all of that to look back often in that direction, as Lot's wife looked back at Sodom. These weak and faint-hearted penitents abstain for some time from sin, but it is with regret. They would like to be able to sin without being damned. They speak of sin with a certain satisfaction and relish, and esteem those happy who commit sins. I want to focus on that one passage in there very briefly. They would like to be able to sin without being damned. That's worth reflecting on. Well, the whole passage is, obviously. I mean, I think over time, sin gets its claws and its tentacles into us. And not only because we're fallen creatures, but because we continue to enjoy and habituate ourselves to the lives of sin and what they produce over long periods of time. Um, of course, even people who have had the fortune to grow up within the church and um, be shown its good example from a young age, all of us have our sins that we need to overcome and bear. But I am now thinking in particular of myself and many of my peers who have come from lives where they've we've been soaked in it for a long period of time. And what that's done is it's made many of our habits, pastimes, enjoyments, even many of our really warm and happy memories interwoven with the life of sin. So that we come to feel like that's where all of our enjoyment comes from. That's where our joy comes from, to the extent that we understand what joy is, although that life is basically a shadow of it. So why this passage is interesting is because it's talking about how even if you recognise the good, the true and the beautiful, which is our Lord Jesus Christ and his church, it still doesn't seem that way in relation to sin in many instances. As we're trying to break into the life of virtue, we're letting go of sin, but it's kind of still touching at our fingertips and we feel like we're really missing something. This life of enjoyment and pleasure and excitement, which was uh, which we were enjoying before, is breaking away from us. And as we look back, we feel like we're actually missing something. And that's what he's speaking about. He's speaking about how you can have the penitential heart and mind, which realizes that the thing that those things are wrong and that they are wrong, and that we 
want to serve and uh, honour our Lord instead. But at the same time, there's that niggling regret as if we've lost something. And so that's why he hit that passage by saying we would like to, to sin. We would like to go back to those life, to that life and do those things. But the only thing that we don't like about them is that we're going to offend the Lord and be damned for them. Now, I think what this passage really brings to our attention is the question. How bad is evil and how do we recognize that? Because the thing is. The saints and the angels, I believe, see sin for, for clearly for what it is. And we don't. They, what I'm trying to say is that they see through the veneer of enjoyment that sin gives to our lives and comfort and even um, uh, peace in many cases, I suppose. They see through that veneer that it has and understand what damage it's doing not only to the world, but to our lives individually as well. As much as we think that it's helping us and making our lives better, it is in fact making us much worse. It's in fact not only making our lives more miserable on the whole, but making us also into worse people who are contributing to the evil of the world. And because we can't see that, I think that's one of the main reasons that we have this affection for it, as if it's doing some good because we can't perceive clearly the evil which it really is and the effect that therefore has. Um, so I think that breaking away from the affection of sin does involve a reflection, does involve a reflection, it requires a reflection on just how evil it is and what it does to us and the world around us. And it's hard. It's a hard thing to really understand it in its entirety because so many sins are so subtle, right? For example, even the sin of sloth, not doing as good as you could have done is a sin, right? And it's like, how do you measure that? Because you can't see the effects. You can see the effects of, say, gratuitous anger if you take it out on someone and you damage them and you hurt them in some way. But simply by being blasé about things or not giving God his proper justice, how are these things clearly damaging the world? And one of the ways to put it just in a sentence, because I don't want to spend too much time on this, is that by depriving the world of perfection, you're doing evil to it. By depriving the world of perfection, a vacuum exists, exists which evil then jumps into and is able to grow. So... I'm going to leave it there, I think, for the time being. We must enlarge our contrition as much as possible so that it may embrace everything that is connected with sin. So this is going now a little bit further. Um, if just now I was talking about how we must expand our idea of sin to understand how it damages everything. This is slightly different. He's saying that we should enlarge our, our idea of contrition or, or rejecting the rejection of sin. To not only reject the actions and the instances of sin themselves, but all the things that are connected to that as well. 
all of the things that might either inspire us or motivate us or get us interested in the occasions of sin. So it's not simply a case of disdaining, say, being drunk, right, or, or making a fool of yourself, more specifically getting so drunk that you make a complete fool of yourself and you throw up on your friend's carpet or something. It's like if you know that the sight of alcohol makes you interested in doing that, then that too, the very sight of it, should be disdained. Yeah? Perhaps even to some degree, depending on your temperament, the existence of alcohol would be something that you, you disdain. That's slightly different for each person because if you... It's not like everyone who drinks is going to commit sin as a result. Um, as Catholics, we're not Puritans in that regard. We are allowed to drink alcohol. But there are some people who shouldn't touch a drop, and there are some people who can have multiple glasses without it being um, an occasion of sin. But the point is, if it is an occasion for sin for any person, then they have to have both the self-knowledge and the knowledge of the world around them to realise all of the ways in which sin has a web or tendrils which it splays out that it can catch us with. And that's the point. In that case, it's not like the jaws of sin itself, which is the only thing to be dis dis uh, disdained, but it's tendrils as well. Because again, these are all things that are tempting us, coaxing us into sin and possibly the damnation of our eternal lives as well. And so you can at least, even if it seems very extreme, especially at the beginning stages, um, the rationale for that is quite clear, I think. As the light of the day grows stronger, we see more clearly in the mirror the spots and stains upon our faces. Even so, as the interior light of the Holy Spirit enlightens our consciences, we see more distinctly and more clearly the sins, inclinations and imperfections which are able to hinder us from attaining to true devotion. And the self-same light which enables us to see these blemishes and defects inflames us with the desire to cleanse and purify ourselves from them. So that's at once uh, arguably a fairly dire, but also a very hopeful bit of insight. Um, it connects to the fact that you often hear that the saints genuinely thought themselves to be wicked and wretched, yeah? which obviously seems crazy on the face of it because they're esteemed as the least horrific people in history, the most worthy of, of reverence and, dare we say, the best of us, right? They didn't think that. They genuinely thought themselves to be base and lowly and horrific things. But the point is that during their devotion, during their spiritual development, their baseness became clear to them. That's the point. Pride as it's woven through all of us, makes us so blind to our baseness that we think ourselves far more worthy and decent than we are, than we in fact are. Um, the chasm between the goodness of God and the state that we're in and our own inclinations and will is, well, it's simply opaque to most of us, right? 
And so that's what St. Um, Francis is talking about. He's saying that, well, when the light of devotion starts to rise in us and that inner light is beginning to shine, like when you shine a light um, well, on anything, the shadow behind it becomes clearer. And indeed, the defects and the imperfections on its surface are brought out. So, too, are our imperfections clearly shown to us. They're dark to us at the moment because we are, in that sense, in darkness. Our souls and our understanding are in darkness. And so we cannot clearly see what we are. Whereas when that light begins to shine, that's good, right? That's a sign of progress because the light is shining and it's showing us more clearly what we are. But, well, instead of being an occasion for hubris and pride in that sense, no, what it really is, it's an occasion to be more humble and say, okay, now that I can see clearly what I am, I know what I'm not. And in many respects, it's not something good. We can see why the process of purification is a lifelong struggle, right? Because the idea is that because we are intrinsically fallen in nature, as that sun continues to shine within us, as that light continues to grow, perhaps more and more defects will be revealed until we are perfect, as our Father is perfect, right? And so as it continues to reveal more to us, we will simply have more perfecting to do. But again, if we didn't know that and that didn't come to light to begin with, then it would show that we had no, made no progress at all. So that, if anything, is a cause for hope. This is a practical bit of advice. It is nothing, Philothea, to tell a little lie, to be a little ill-regulated in words, in actions, in looks, in dress, in refinery, in playing games, in dancing, provided that as soon as these spiritual spiders enter our conscience, we drive them away again and banish them as the beeves drive away the corporeal spiders. But if we allow them to stay in our hearts, and not only that, if we take pleasure in retaining them there and multiplying them, soon we shall see our honesty lost and the hive of our conscience corrupted and ruined. We don't need to be perfect all of the time, and we don't need to be flawless in every single thing that we do. And that gives us a bit of a relief because, again, because of how high the bar is set, it can make us feel like we have to grab onto every little thing from the outset and make sure we're micromanaging everything that we're doing to make sure that everything is flawless. St. Francis is saying, look, don't get hung up on that mistakes will come and they can be made what he's advising against instead is just saying when the when those mistakes are made which they will invariably be don't tend to them don't let them settle in you don't become accustomed to, to uh, don't become accustomed to them if you're noticing that you're making these small little mistakes like you without thinking end up telling a lie or you have witlessly dressed immodestly one day um, perhaps you get a bit more irritable than you should do a little bit quickly, then these are just the imperfections that we're all going to carry. But so long as you don't then grab onto those and think, okay, that was a good thing that I did. That's something that I want to make a part of my character and a part of my life. 
or even if you just neglect it so much that you don't see the wrong that it does, that's where the danger lies. So he's basically saying, don't worry too much about the mistakes, but just be vigilant of them and make sure that when they do appear, like spiders, brush them away from your, from your home. Now, I had to once speak to a priest about this question of how much rest are we allowed? Um, because at the end of the day, there's always something that we could be doing, right? There's always work to do. Um, and every moment could be used productively. However, it's also simply the case that not only is a life which is only toil and work um, very strenuous and in some cases miserable, but it also fatigues us as well, right? If you work a 90-hour week, um, then you won't probably be able to work a second one, right? So even just for pure practicality, rest and recreation should be woven into life. And much more than that, it actually just allows us to appreciate the joy within it as well, right? Um, there is something more than simple or mere rest that you gain from playing a board game with a good group of friends when you're sharing that enjoyment together or when you teach your children how to sing or something like that, right? Um, these ads, in some cases, I would argue, a profound element to life. But let's just talk about recreation and playing games in general, okay? So if we're going to say, well, how much rest should we have? What place is there for that in life? And so St. Francis is speaking to games now. Games, balls, feasts, pageants and plays in themselves are no wise evil, but simply indifferent. It being possible for them to be carried, carried out well or ill. Nevertheless, such things are always dangerous and, have, and to have an affection to them is still more dangerous. I say then, Philothea, that it is lawful to play, to dance, to adorn oneself, to be present at proper plays and to feast. Yet to have an affection to such things is contrary to devotion and extremely hurtful and dangerous. What I really like about Catholicism is that when it comes down to so many things, it's basically common sense. Right? Um, he's saying that yeah, there is a time and a place in life for games and uh, games and dancing and feasts and everything. The first thing to notice is that he didn't say don't do any of these things or even that they're wrong. The most he said, well, he said that in themselves they're indifferent, right? They're morally neutral. All he's saying is that don't let them distract you from devotion. Don't become, don't get an affection, don't become attached to them so much, right? There are times in life we should almost, in that sense, take our recreation as a as a form of fortune. Yeah, as the opportunity arises to uh, play a game with someone or go to a dance or there's a feast which really is prudent to attend. Wonderful, enjoy that and allow life to show you what colour it has. But at the same time, you shouldn't use those occasions as an excuse to say, "Okay, I'm now going to make my day." more about playing games than I am about doing, than it is going to be about doing my duty or saying my prayers. That's simply where the danger lies, right? Let rest be a rest, but don't let rest then be a distraction 
from work. So then he goes on to say of the idea of someone who's you know, become too attached to, to games. Um, the heart of man burdening itself with these useless, superfluous and dangerous affections cannot run after God readily, freely and easily, which is the true mark of devotion. So all of the mental effort you give to playing 10 hours of PlayStation a day is energy that you're not giving to the life that you should be giving to God, right? All of the time that you're thinking about going to parties or chasing girls or playing music, again, outside of its proper context and place, is time that you're not giving to God. On the matter of purifying ourselves from evil inclinations. We still have, Philothea, certain natural inclinations which, inasmuch as they have not taken their origin from our own personal sins, are not properly sins, neither mortal nor venial, but are called imperfections, and the acts which are the outcome of these inclinations are called defects and shortcomings. There are some persons who are by nature frivolous, others serious, some slow to accept the opinions of others, some prone to indignation, others to anger, others to love, and in short there are few persons in whom su some such imperfections may not be observed. Now, although they are, as it were, proper and natural to each one, Yet, by care and by contrary affection, they may be corrected and moderated. Yea, may even deliver, we may even deliver and purify ourselves from them. We have three different classes of problem as Catholics. Mortal sins, venial sins, and now what he's calling imperfections. Um... Mortal sins are sins that if you commit them, they put you beyond God's grace and you need to go to confession to have them forgiven so that you can carry on in that grace. Um, if you die in the state of mortal sin without it, have, without it being corrected, you will go to hell. And so their severity cannot really be overstated. Venial sins are on a different degree than that, right? So, for example, committing murder is a mortal sin. Venial sins are things that are this, well, they're not good, right? They're corrupting the, the moral order, but not so much as to put you outside of God's grace, right? So unjustly losing your temper with someone would probably be a venial sin. However, imperfections are a grave below that, and they are kind of, if you like, quirks of character which aren't ideal, yeah? So one of the examples that comes to mind is there are people who say, I've met a number of people who seem to have a talent for enjoying life or seeing the good within it. Um, and that seems like a virtue in its own way because it allows them to appreciate things much more and it allows them to uh, energize and vitalize the people around them. 
and to help them enjoy life as well and to see the good in it. Whereas um, I know other people, and I'd probably include myself in this, who do not have that inclination naturally, uh, who otherwise have a fairly dire and pessimistic outlook for, about things. Um, mine, fortunately, has been tempered over the years and it's much more balanced now. Um, but there are certainly people I know as well who their default is to sway towards thinking about things negatively. Um, and that you might call an imperfection. That by itself is not actually causing them to sin in any way. And they haven't gone as far with that imperfection perhaps to be in a state of despair or to give up or to anything like that. But as an imperfection of their character, it keeps making them slip into attitudes that they shouldn't have, thoughts that aren't really helpful, that kind of thing. And as Francis, as St. Francis is saying, every person has their own quirks and characters and defects. And if we understand them properly and if we approach them vigilantly, these can be mitigated and corrected and indeed even overcome. Being imperfections, we shouldn't get so worried about them. That's the thing. Put everything in its proper order. Recognise the magnitude of everything according to its status, right? Don't mistake an imperfection for a mortal sin. Don't get as hung up or as worried about it as you should do with a mortal sin, because it simply doesn't have the same level of severity. Um, all imperfections, whether they be normal imperfections, venial or mortal sins, detach us from the perfection of God. But again, put things, have a sense of perspective, okay? There is no natural temperament so good that it may not sorry. There is no natural temperament so good that it may not be made evil by vicious habits. And there is no natural temperament so refractory that it may not, first by the grace of God, and then by industry, diligence, and diligence, be subdued, no become. So if you're one of those people who has that. Let's say you have like a natural inclination towards anger and you just you too readily lose your temper with people. Um, he's saying that that's not so trivial that you can't make that much worse. If you mismanage that or if you simply allow it to get away from you, that anger could very easily become a venial sin. You know, if you accuse someone unjustly. Or it could indeed become a mortal sin if that imperfection then takes your anger to the point of killing someone, right? So there's no imperfection or temperament that cannot be made evil by the wrong habits and actions. However, he's also said that there is no temperament which cannot also be corrected by, firstly, the help of God, and then on our part, due diligence and uh, discipline. So, yes, we all have our imperfections, but we shouldn't say, first of all, we shouldn't get hung up on them as being the end of the world. But at the same time, we can also uh, not be oh, what's the word? What's the word? 
consigned. That's it. We should not be consigned to their existence. Yeah, They can be overcome. We shouldn't just say that it's set in stone. And so if we're factoring that in in the long term, maybe that's something that we need to think about as well. These little problems that we have are also things that we can, um, perhaps should, pay attention to. On the necessity of prayer. Inasmuch as prayer places our understanding in the clearness of the divine light and exposes our will to the warmth of heavenly love, there is nothing which so purges our understanding of its ignorance and our will of its depraved inclinations. It is the water of benediction. I've heard it said that prayer is the entirety of the, of the Catholic life, of the perfect Catholic life. Arguably, the only thing that we're here to do is pray and pray all of the time. But to understand that, we have to, like with the discussion on love, we have to expand our understanding of what prayer therefore entails. First of all, we have to talk about love again briefly, because as we said in the last discussion, love or agape, the divine love, is, um, is broader than what we usually understand. It encompasses the complete will of wanting what's best for someone. And therefore we can conclude that actually our entire purpose is to love, and specifically to, to love God, and then through our love for him, to love everyone and everything else as well. Um, but then you presented with a paradox, right? I mean, you can say on the one hand that our entire purpose is to love, but then you can say on the other that our entire purpose is to pray. Well, of course, the only way that you can square that is by saying somehow to love and to pray are, in fact, the same thing. Now, why would that be the case? Well, I've also heard prayer defined as the practice of being in the presence of God. Okay. And now because of the type of being that God is, practicing being in his presence doesn't just, doesn't just mean standing next to him, but allowing him and being in his presence in action, in thought, in your soul, in your understanding, so that in that sense, you are soaked through with his presence. Okay. Now, when we do pray, the act of praying, obviously that now ties some things together, because when you're praying, you're trying to put yourself, you're trying to speak to him. And that's one of the most basic ways that we are in the presence of someone by entering conversation with them. So this is what prayer is about. And now Francis is really, St. Francis is really emphasizing the role of prayer in the life of devotion. It places our understanding in the clearness of the divine light and exposes our will to the warmth of heavenly love. And of course it would, right? Because if we're placing ourselves in the presence of God, by being near him, he exudes his goodness upon us, right, onto us. That's the idea. The, the closer we get to God, it's, it's as if we're like a, a walking shadow, and he is that one pure, ultimate divine light. And the closer we stand to that light, the more it shines the shadow out of us. Yeah. 
That's how I like to think of trying to be in God's presence, as if he's a great light which is pushing our darkness away. There is nothing which so purges our understanding of its ignorance and our will of its deprived inclinations as prayer. It is the water of benediction. So again, tying that all together, there's nothing so purifying, nothing so illuminating, genuinely illuminating. There's nothing so purifying, nothing so genuinely illuminating as prayer. Now, the other thing you've got to attend to, I mean, a nice bit of wisdom I was given by a friend as well, was that prayer is all about aligning your will with that of God as well. So again, you can see how all of these things are tying together. By being in his presence, you want to allow him to overtake you, to shine his light into you, um, for you to combine your life with his and by trying to do his will, you're again trying to love him because love involves doing what's best for someone and what is best for God is what his will is. Yeah. Um, so all of these things tie together. So what does that tell us about the actual practice of prayer itself in the way that we, in the way that we most commonly understand it? So, for example, when you say the Our Father, as just one example, well, not only are you speaking to God, right, so placing yourself in his presence, but you're also placing your mind on his nature, his plans, his will, and you're trying to make that your own will as well, right? Thy will be done, as if that is your will as well as his, you want his will to be done. Um, you are expressing that his name is hallowed, right? Hallowed be thy name is a way of saying, I say that your name is hallowed. Thy kingdom come and thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us, right? So taking this um, thing that he does for us, that aspect of his goodness, which is the forgiveness of sins, and saying we will try to model that as well. Our life and our intentions and our actions are going to be in line with what you want us to do and what your example is. So that's just one example, and that kind of shows how the model of spoken and mental prayer can do that. It brings our will and our intention and our, and ultimately our being in line with, with God. But this is also why prayer isn't relegated to spoken or mental uh, speech. St. Paul, for example, said that we could and we should pray every hour of our lives, right? Every day of our lives, every minute. And you think, well, how can you do that? Because obviously if I've got all of my duties to go about in my day, right? I've got children to look after, I've got crops to grow, I've got buildings to create, I've got people to teach. Then how can I possibly spend all of that time reciting my Hail Marys and my Our Fathers? And the, the whole answer to that is, well, that's not what he's telling us to do. Because again, if we broaden our understanding of what prayer is, we have to spend all our time being in God's presence. We might not necessarily be doing that with words and conversation. We might in fact be doing that by constantly ensuring that our will and intention is aimed at God. And by doing what he wants and always keeping him in mind in that sense, offering up all of our, 
offering our hours and our days to him and everything we do within them, that then more expansively becomes an all-encompassing living form of prayer. Very briefly, he makes uh, a few recommendations about the prayers we should say and how to say them. Um, he has this one passage here where he says, after speaking about the Pater, the Ave and the Credo, right? So the Our Father, the um, Hail Mary and the Creed. He says, whilst saying them in the language of the church, sorry, he says you should also say them in Latin, right? So if you're praying your rosary, you have the... Um, uh, well, multiple prayers, right? You have the Creed, the uh, Our Father, the Hail Mary, the Glory Be, um, and the Hail Holy Queen, and the Oh My Jesus. And he says you should pray all of those, but he also says you should also say them in Latin so that whilst saying them in the language of the Church, you may nevertheless relish and the admirable and delicious meaning of these holy prayers which you should say. Sorry, I got that wrong. He's saying you should you should say them in both Latin and your mother tongue, right? But the bit that I found interesting about that passage is where he says you should say them in the language of the church, which is Latin. And I hadn't really thought about that before. I know that we use Latin as Catholics because, um, you know, it's very useful, especially now as a dead language, because the meaning stays consistent. And, you know, we have Latin prayers in the Mass, so the Mass is consistent and the same everywhere in the world, right? So I always understood those aspects. But simply calling, calling Latin the language of the church, I thought was quite a beautiful and interesting way of, of putting it. Um, so he says that we should not only pray these prayers in uh, our mother tongue, so that we indeed understand what they mean, but we should also pray them in Latin, so that we are praying in communion and in the language of the church. Kind of, I suppose, as a way of showing our respects to that in institution that we're all a part of and that our Lord founded. This is extremely important. One single parter, that is to say, one single Our Father, said with feeling, is worth more than many recited quickly and in haste. I was reading a book on the Rosary by Saint Louis de Montfort and he had a similar commendation. He said that one Rosary said well, properly, with intention, with the right attention, is worth a thousand said in haste. So obviously St. Francis is, is echoing exactly the same idea. Our prayers are not mechanical things to tick off of our list. We may well have on our to-do list to say our prayers. There's nothing wrong with treating them as a duty and a discipline. But we should not mistake them for being something on a factory line that we can simply work through. They are, as we've said, part of the conversation with God, part of being in his presence. And so one Our Father said with genuine intention and uh, 
honesty and will is worth you know it's like if you if you just tell 50 random women that you love them and you send it to them via a bulk text message that means basically nothing right compared to if you just simply and sincerely tell one woman i love you okay and that's all it basically means speak and speak honestly and speak from the heart and one prayer said from the heart is worth a thousand rushed off of the tongue so now he's talking about using your intention to place yourself in the presence of god before we begin our practice of prayer right so imagine that you've just sat down to say your rosary or just offer your morning prayers and the first thing he recommends is when you do that, realise who you're speaking to and realise that he's near you. And so place yourself in the presence of God to, to prime your, your prayer life. And he gives um, four principal recommendations for, for how to do that and how to approach that. So I'm now going to set forth four principal ways of placing yourself in the presence of God, which you may make use of in this preparation. The first consists in a lively and intensive apprehension of the omnipresence of God, which means that God is in everything and is everywhere. It's funny to think of sometimes that of all of the different things that are in the world, it's as if God is just one among them. Of all of the different things that we could talk about, whether it be lampshades, carpets, holidays, food and sports, there is also this one topic which is called God, right? Of all the different things that you could read about in a library, there is engineering, botany, um, fashion, and then also there are books on God. And I don't know about you, but sometimes that seems to throw him in this big kind of, uh, throw him as one grain of sand amongst the beach, if you know what I mean. The funny thing is, obviously, it's in that one point, that one topic, that one thing we can give our attention to, that everything else exists, right? God is not one thing within reality. He is not only reality itself, but the thing that gives it being, right? His nature and his life is the thing that allows everything else to exist. And I suppose it's just way easier to pigeonhole him as one thing amongst the variety because it's so hard to wrap our heads around the magnitude of that truth. Um, so St. Francis is just letting us, prompting us back to having that in our minds. God is the very air in, in which we breathe. He is the very water in which we swim and he is in and through everything. So keeping that in mind, that's how we can understand that, yeah, he is actually next to us for all the moments of our lives. Blind men, even though, even though they see not a prince who is presented with them, fail not to behave with respect if they are told of his presence. But the truth is that since they do not see him, they easily forget that he is present. And having forgotten it, 
they lose yet more easily respect and reverence. If we understood how close God was, was to us at all moments, we would constantly be on our knees asking for um, uh, his love and forgiveness. St. Francis has used this analogy of like a, a king walking around in disguise. And if everyone knew who was underneath the disguise, everyone would bow down and give their respects. But because he is wearing that disguise, they often forget his, forget his presence and don't pay him his proper due. In that sense, St. Francis is kind of saying that God and our Lord, indeed, don't forget Jesus is, is the Logos, he's like the ordering divine principle of the whole universe, is always present, is always right next to us, but is hidden in this disguise of material reality. And so we don't see and fully appreciate his presence. And so, again, we can just tweak our minds back to that and understand, no, he's always standing next to us. The second way of placing yourself in this holy presence is to think that not only is God in the place where you are, but that he is in a very special manner in your heart and in the depth of your spirit. And I think properly speaking, that's the of the three persons of the Trinity, that's the Holy Spirit that's within us. Um, I once heard someone say that, you know, God, it's like God is above, Jesus is beside and the Holy Spirit is within these things are never exactly accurate because it's a mystery for a good reason, but that's one way to think about it. But God knows us and is part of us more intimately than anything else is, right? Because he created the very blood within our veins and knows more than we do the details of the skin and the cells in our hands, right? And of course, with our soul and our being and our mind and our heart as well. And as the Holy Spirit is within us and is present more intimately than anyone else possibly could be. So if we can bring our attention back to that, we can realize that before we even place ourselves in God's presence, he is already intimately present within us. The third way is to consider our savior who in his humanity looks from heaven upon all persons in the world but particularly upon Christians who are his children, and more especially upon those who are in prayer, whose actions and behaviour he observes. When it comes to the theology of the trilogy, it's, it's quite easy to get lost in the weeds, so I'm not going to. But the idea there is, you know, for practical purposes, we should reflect on the fact that in his hum on his throne, Christ looks down upon us, watching and weighing the actions and decisions of our lives. And in particular, he's paying attention to us when we speak to him, indeed, during prayer. The fourth way consists in making use of the imagination alone, representing to ourselves the saviour in his sacred humanity, as though he were there near to us. And I imagine that if you were simply given the instruction to place yourself in the presence of God, that might be one of the easiest, or perhaps the go-to strategy for most people, right? Well, how do you place yourself in someone's presence? Well, you just imagine that they're there, right? 
And I think that's what he's saying. You can do that. It's legitimate. You simply, if you want to place yourself in the presence of God, imagine that Jesus is sitting next to you or kneeling beside you or that you're kneeling at his feet and you're saying your prayers. And that's just one of the other ways to place yourself in the presence of God, making yourself ready for prayer.